Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Tractable podcast. Uh, I'm Chitesh, your host, co-founder and CTO here at Orb. Um, I'm really excited today to have Robbie Walzer here with me, who's the head of engineering at SingleStore. SingleStore is a distributed SQL database built for both transactional and analytics workloads. Uh, and we have a lot to talk about. So really excited to dig in with Robbie. Robbie, welcome to the show. Thanks. Yeah, great to be here. Uh, awesome. Let's just dive right in. Tell me a little bit about your background and, and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so I've been at SingleStore for almost you know better part of a decade at this point. It was actually my first job out of school. Joined when that team was about about twenty people, and you know been here ever since. At least I've grown the company, and you know product has, has evolved to where we are today. Nice. I, I know that it's it's been a long time since you joined, and and I'm sure you've worked across the whole stack since then. Uh, and I'm sure this is actually the, the first question you get when you present single source thesis. And certainly the question I had, which is, how is it possible to do analytics and OLTP workloads in one solution? So maybe with your lens, having been at single store and seeing that architecture get built up, give me an overview of what that architecture looks like. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing is like important concept in, in, in context is single source wasn't always single source. Originally founded as MemSQL, which the idea at the time, so you can tell from the name, was to be an in-memory database. Memory prices had been getting cheaper exponentially for the previous 40, 50 years. And to really take advantage of that, you needed to have a new database architecture from the ground up. The, the bottlenecks had moved away from being disk-based and you couldn't take a legacy database, put your data, your, your index in memory because the, the query execution engine wasn't designed around the data being resident in memory. At the core of that for us was having an in-memory skip list. And so that allowed for really high throughput updates and point lookups while still having pretty good scan performance. Long story short, the in-memory database market never really took off. Okay. Uh, it was a great initial product, but what, a couple of things happened. The memory prices stopped go going down around the early 2010s and data volumes kept getting bigger. So it was just extremely limiting to, to limit yourself by that. So hmm. over time, we evolved the product to be a lot more flexible. Okay. So at the core, our, 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 the, the, it, we still have that in-memory row store. The first thing we, we, the next thing we did, added was a disk-based column store. Hmm. And so that initially looked very similar to the column store that you see in analytics-only data, data warehouses. Hmm. Uh, so if you're not, not familiar in, in the, the two, two main storage uh, technologies that are used inside of databases are row stores and column stores. Right. Uh, in, in a row store, you have all of the data for all the columns for a given row are stored sequentially. So it's really great for uh, seeks. And in a column store, all of the data for a column is stored sequentially. So that is really mm -hmm. good for uh, for scans. So over time, but we're really bad for seeks. So over mm -hmm. time, we, we got kept getting pushed by our customers who wanted the one of the best of both worlds. They didn't want it that they were really expensive, too expensive for OLTP, and they loved, loved it, the, the analytical performance of, of the column store, and that right. it was low cost of ownership because it's highly compressed and stored on disk. What we ended up getting to was actually a technology that we initially called single store and then renamed okay. the company after, was to take the column store and first make it seekable. So hmm. rather than having to do a big batch scan, if you wanted to read one row, you now just had to, to read the data that you needed. And so we went through hmm. all the, the various encodings 
and redesign them. Then the next thing that we did is, so typically, in, if you want to do a high throughput, a lot of updates, you're, you need to have fine grain locking. And so right. a lot of column stores are going to lock at like the, 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 the uh, block level or, or even table level. So the yeah. next thing we did was move some of, enable some of the optimizations that we had for row level locking on the row store on top of the column store. Hmm. And then the next, so that's seekability and really updatability. And then the next thing was a further enhancement of seekability that's just adding secondary indexes to the column store. And so those right. three things combined really revolutionized were, were what enabled us to, to actually change our default table type to column store because we were so confident that the vast majority of workloads could use that for both transactions hmm. and analytics. Hmm. And we were actually ultimately renamed the whole company after that project. So we had to rename that project to Universal Storage. So that's what you, if you look in our docs today, it's called right. Universal Storage, not Single Store. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's the secret sauce. Okay, got it. To reflect that back at you, you were able to add a lot of properties that you would get in a row storage format to this column storage underlying storage engine, right? Th that's interesting. And it sounds like you're able to get some of these query characteristics. Is it also true that you're able to get the same sort of transactional guarantees and the, the properties yeah. that you might expect out of like store? So the, the, the nice thing is that our metadata is actually still in a roaster table. So that an in-memory roaster table. I see. Uh, and, and that's obviously, I say in-memory, but it goes without saying that's still durable to disk through, right. through logging, write-ahead logging. But that what that means is you get all, all the same transactional guarantees around uh, ACID and, and isolation, and that's where the ANSI isolation levels mm -hmm. are implemented. And... Yeah, and that, that as a relational database, that kind of goes without saying. That's table stakes. Right. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And one of the things you said there was your customers really wanted to have the flexibility and, as you were saying, the, the low cost of ownership of a traditional analytics data store that can compress all of this columnar data, but they also wanted these guarantees and seek performance that you get out of an OLTP store. But in some sense, I would imagine that these audiences are traditionally pretty different, right? Like the person looking for these analytics workloads is the data science team, probably at an organization, whereas the engine product, the kind of production data stores looking for something like Postgres. How, how do you think about that? Are those buyers distinct or have you seen those kind of- I would say, yes, traditionally they're, they're distinct. So traditionally in the database markets, you had your application, which was maybe a CRUD application, we'll call it OLTP. Mm -hmm. And all of your analytics happened in your data warehouse was that was a separate team. You had an ETL process that moved data from your online right. uh, application database to your data warehouse, not only because they were separate systems, but also because you, you wanted to have a different schema for analytics querying versus yeah. operational querying. Exactly. What, and that to a certain extent for, for a lot of things that is still true, hmm. but what we see in a lot, a lot of our customers is that the application itself is needing more analytics mm. capabilities, mm. whether that's a real-time trading application for doing making a billing application. We want to do ag right. aggregations to, to accumulate, figure out how much usage somebody accrued within some time period. Right. And that's where, you know, Postgres is a, is a great database, but then once, once you have a certain level of, of data volume and you're doing analytics where 
you don't yeah. want that delay of going over to a more analytics focused system. That's where the power of having that uh, both transactional and analytical capabilities come, comes in play. Interesting. So it, it sounds like what you're saying is that production applications themselves are moving to a world or, or products are moving to a world where they need that analytics capability in this sort of sub-second query performance. They need to not have something like Redshift or Snowflake where, you know, not only might a single query take two or three seconds to just spin up, but I think also some of these data stores have pretty large like maintenance windows where you just can't rely on them to be backing your production application. Yeah, and, and, and another thing is that once you introduce multiple systems for the same application, right. that's like an operational overhead. You have to, yeah. you have to train your engineers. They're have slightly different. Everybody's implementing ANSI SQL, but everyone has yeah. like a slightly different flavor of it. So yeah. you like, so you might not have like fully portable queries between these systems. They're going to have like slightly different behaviors and feature sets that they, they support. In some cases, like our operational, we, we don't run our operational uh, workloads for our, like the control plane. Mm -hmm. on the same deployment as our internal data warehouse. Yeah. But it's nice in that because we want them to be isolated. They're, they are different schemas, like I was saying before. Right. But it's right. obviously very convenient that you can run query against one or the other, and it's all still single store. It sounds like it's the thought is not that it's literally one database, right? Because yeah. you're saying you might want yeah. workload isolation. You might literally have different performance guarantees that you want out of multiple deployments of this product across your organization, but you don't want to have to deal with different like query syntax, even as a yeah, starting exactly. point across different things. Yeah, that's just one example. But and then when going into operationalizing yeah. like a data store to have the, the you've got to have monitor it, you've got to deal with upgrades and th things like that. It's going to be different yeah. in all these different platforms. So if you have yeah. a single system, it's just lower overhead. Yeah. And I, I want to push you a little bit on trade-offs, right? It, it sounds really good, right? I can run very different sorts of queries on the same data store, but what am I losing in this going down this path? Is it that I'm trading off performance? Is it that I'm trading off some more sophisticated queries that single store has to compromise on to, to great, support these requests? So we've like a, a design tenant, and that's this is like part of what's allowed us to survive past being an in-memory database was that we didn't want to make a to pick design decisions that precluded us, even if, unless we were really confident that that was like 100% the right thing to do for everybody, right. uh, that precluded us from being able to support other types of workloads. Right. For example, for us, compared to, let's say, a dedicated cloud data warehouse, yeah. we have separation of storage compute to, for a lot of our object files. But actually, mm. metadata is still, to a certain extent, tied to compute. So right. that allows us to, to run those transactional workloads and have really low latency writes while still having pretty good elasticity of storage and pretty good elasticity of compute. Uh, but on the other hand, it's not going to be as elastic mm -hmm. as a, a, a system that is 100% designed to be uh, something like BigQuery, where right. it is completely separate from and, and, and isolated there. Yeah. There still is a benefit to, to specialized systems in, in, in some cases. Yeah. And if you have a, a we have time for another example, like we have time series capabilities. Right. And I think our time series functions are probably good enough for uh, a large proportion of people. Like most people aren't going super deep into right. time series. 
Right. Uh, but then there are going to be workloads where you need the the full every possible query feature of time series. You want the the most optimized storage format specifically yeah. for time series. And yeah. then yeah, it makes sense. Go use that. But I think that our observation is most people don't have super specialized applications like that. Yeah, it's purpose workload for the large majority of people. And and I, I know for example that talking about in memory data stores, the folks at DeckDB have this thesis that your your data is not as big as you think, right? Like usually the, the queries that you're executing are operating on a very small subset of your data. And it, it sounds like there's a kind of similar thesis here yeah, where- it's a corollary. Yeah. Uh, yeah, in their, in their case, they're saying everyone was obsessing about big data, but you don't really have big data. Yeah. And I think like the corollary is, okay, everyone's obsessing about like specialized databases for X, Y, and Z, but your workload is actually not that specialized. Yeah. So actually speaking of specialized workloads, I know that the new hot thing right now is uh, AI and semantic search, right? And so that's another case where there's a, a crop of specialized data stores popping up. And so maybe before we even dig into how single store thinks about that landscape of tools, maybe you can give me a, a summary of what's semantic search and, and why is it hard? Why would you consider picking up a new database just for this problem? Yeah, great, great question. So first, going to semantic search is so, so traditional search. We had just, just did keyword matching, which right. works pretty well. In semantic search, the idea is that we take some object, whether it's a picture or a sentence, use an, uh, an AI model to get to transform that into vector space, and then now we can, if we have two, 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 two of these, we call embeddings. We can right. see how similar they are based on their distance, whether that's dot product or Euclidean distance. And so now, and that is basically saying like, how close are these two things in meaning? And so at a very basic level, you can just do that with a, a dot product or Euclidean distance function, but that's with brute force, but that is, is too, too slow if you're scaling to billions of objects. Right. So that, and, that, and higher yeah. dimensions. Right? Yeah. And higher dimensions. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that makes sense. It sounds like there's a real algorithmic bottleneck or yeah. I guess a performance problem people are trying to solve. So what single stores take on this? Is, is it that maybe if you're doing something at a very large scale, you, you might need a very specialized data store, but for most AI applications, even then. You can use a general purpose store. Is it that same flavor of, of um, thesis? A little bit different, I would say. Okay. So yeah. So the, the core of this is that you need to have an, an, an approximate index or uh, to do an approximate nearest neighbor search. So that's what a lot of so have open source libraries like Face and mm -hmm. newer, you know, full databases, Pinecone and and Chroma. So our position on, on this, so an ANN index is essentially it's just another index type. So right. we're really great at, at building indexes and adding new, new storage types. And so that's one thing that we're working on mm -hmm. is, is just adding that as an index type to our columns or table, which is the default, default table type. Right. Where I think that's going to differ and like our, our strength relative to the specialized systems is that if you want to combine, say, your vector search with data that you, with the actual, where the data is originating. Right. Uh, and do that in a single query. That's right. a lot easier when it's you're doing your vector search in the same system as your application database. Yeah. Another thing that I think is interesting about semantic search compared to classical search 
mm-hmm. is that if you look at like a system like something like Elasticsearch or, or, yeah. or Lucene, which Elasticsearch is based off of, there's a lot of complexity in both in have, have, there's configuration around around stemming, around boosting to get the the, the scoring algorithm that, uh, properties that you want, and like yeah. a lot of complexity go, goes into having to configure all that. And so, like yeah. for us to, to build out all that functionality would be massive. So there's like still yeah. whereas the interesting thing I think with semantic search is now a lot of that complexity is out of the database, whether right. you're um, a specialized vector database or a, a more general purpose system and it's moved into the model. Hmm. And uh, I think it's, there's long-term, I think less of a need for a, a specialized system relative compared to, to classical search. Yeah. So it sounds like you're saying the secret sauce has moved into generating the embeddings themselves, right? Yeah. And you do have a fairly similar problem that you can solve across databases without, without needing all of that configurability. I think one way I think about it is presumably you might reach for a new data store if you expect the workload to be very different, or even like your tolerance to failure modes to be very different. Yeah. Yeah, Do you think that does exist? Do you think there's a, the ecosystem or or even the architecture surrounding the database would be different for something like a vector store? Yeah. And and obviously I think, I think potentially different architecture, that's something we can work around, but it's just more, more adds, adds some complexity, for example, it's really important to have efficient build times. You need to, to train your index on a GPU. It's going to be yeah. way faster than, yeah. and we're obviously fully CPU-based because for real, most database workloads, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. So there's definitely some benefits in specializing there. Another thing that's just, you can, if all you support is a semantic search, you can have a really simple API for semantic search. Hmm. If And so that, so like from a developer experience, you might be able to, to have an easier developer experience relative to a system that supports a lot more functionality, but not it's SQL. So whether you, whether you like SQL or not is obviously I'm I'm biased. I like SQL, but not everyone's, not everyone's SQL person. And, And do you think that in this domain, like single store has an advantage against something like vector search in Postgres or one of these Postgres extensions that are being developed that again, still leverages SQL, but maybe bakes it into the, the Postgres query engine. Is it the storage layer that you think you you all would have the advantage in? Is it just like how you construct the index yourself or the search algorithm? Yeah, so I don't think, so we compared to Postgres, the, the vector indexing algorithms to a certain extent are, they haven't maybe quite yet, but will over time just be commoditized. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mm-hmm. already have open source libraries like Face, they're just right. well known. And, and right. to a certain extent, this happens to a lot of the underlying like storage technology and databases. Everybody yeah. knows how to build a column store to a certain extent. Right. Where we differentiate from a system like Postgres is in, which by the way, I think Postgres is a great database, is in just our ability to scale. There will be a, a point where if you're running your workload on Postgres, it just uh, won't be able to keep up anymore. You know? And yeah. you hit that a lot sooner, obviously, if you're doing something like analytics. Yeah. But you are a scale-out system with customers running on clusters with thousands of cores. Yeah. That, where that's just not something you can do with Postgres. Yeah. And actually that's, that general point is something I want to dig into where you, as you were just saying, you've been at MemSQL and then single store for almost a decade now. And what I want to get your insight into is how you unfold the complexity of building a data store over time. So at the beginning, to what extent did you hand optimize workloads for your largest customers versus trying to be as, as general as possible on day one? So 
What is that trade-off story then? And then how has that changed now? Yeah, that's a great question. Especially in the earlier days around when I was starting, when I started for the couple biggest customers we got that year, like we were trying to push out of being just a special purpose database. We, we didn't want to yeah. just be an in-memory row store. And so that as a result, we were trying to get customers that were like beyond our capabilities at the time. Mm. And to do that, we had had to essentially really understand what specifically what their workloads were doing. And is, does, do we think first like sniff test it? Does, does, do we think this is, is something that other people are going to do? But yeah, yeah. we did build in, in our query optimizer, their optimizations that were specifically for those, the, the, the type, the six distinct queries that that customer really cared about. Yeah. Uh, I think on the one hand, obviously you think, oh, you did all this, this work to get one customer that maybe doesn't generalize. I think it, it was useful for us because obviously we got, got that customer and they needed it, but right. also you learned a lot about what mattered. So then when we, it was very both fun and, and when we later went back and generalized a lot of those optimizations yeah. uh, to make them useful to a lot more workloads, we knew that like the work that we were doing there was actually worth it because we had yeah. already validated that with one customer. Today, that, yeah. I was going to ask, did that change a lot going from an in-memory data store where you were optimizing workloads that depended on that architecture versus thinking about scale out and, and single stores of practice? Um, yes and no. Obviously, there are a bunch of different query optimizations that go in, in, into a, a database like ours. From a distributed query processing perspective, that was all orthogonal. Hmm. But from optimizing the, the types of query execution strategies and optimizations that make sense on an in-memory row store versus a disk-based column store. Hmm. So for example, like nested loop join is really fast hmm. on an in-memory row store. You're like, don't need, you don't, you basically never do a hash join because because the skip list is so fast. Whereas on a column store, like hash join is, you want to have the fastest <laughs> hash join possible. And, and your optimizer needs to know how to use that. So there yeah. is like a di very different set of, of query execution and, and, and query optimization techniques that, that matter. Okay. Yeah. So th that makes sense to me. And so, so now fast forwarding to today, I imagine that presumably you're not hand optimizing for specific clients or although maybe even on the enterprise side, that still makes sense. H how do you think about uh, that same decision today? Yeah, it's obvious happens a lot more rarely. And today it's more of, because Query optimization and, and like database workload optimization is very interesting because you can be have 99% of the workload be really well optimized, but you have a couple slow queries and it blows the whole things up. Like you can right. have a, every query is under sub second and one query that you pick a bad plan on takes a couple <laughs> minutes and it just doesn't matter that you're so fast on everything else. Yeah. So it does at a certain point, it feels one, once you get to that point in, in query optimization development uh, that you are building a lot of special cases. Yeah. It turns out over a large enough number of customers that they aren't that special cases. Mm -hmm. Like even if it, it might be something that shows up in 1% of customer queries, but it's that's still enough that it's worth yeah. it to have, have that optimization because the alternative is just way too slow. And optimization versus configurability is an interesting question to me. I imagine that some of the optimizations you want to do have to conflict with each other, right? Like just mm -hmm. nature of different workloads. Sometimes you have to prioritize one thing over the other. How much does that make its way into the overall architecture versus that just being something that you can configure within single store, right? Like, how do you think about, okay, this is like a database level trade-off we have to make versus this is something we can let our end user control and say, okay, I want to opt in to this sort of workload because I know as the person in control that that's where my queries are going to lean. Yeah. So for us, 
for better or worse, we are extremely configurable. Okay. We have many different table types and or we have the row store and column store. And each of those have different have several different index types, shard keys, sort keys, full text indexes, hash indexes. And so it gives people a lot of tools, a lot of options hmm. to make the system work for them. Yeah. And so that's for better. For worse, yeah. is that's a lot of complexity. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Where the long-term vision obviously is, and this is a, a case where I think research area that I think is really interesting for applying AI to improve databases is to, hmm. is to make a lot of that more automatic. You say, okay, hmm. I want an auto table. Hmm. We, you give us some suggestion and tell us your constraints. Yeah. And we optimize that for you based on, yeah. on, on the queries that we see. Obviously we, we don't do any of that today, but that's something that we're starting to think about. And actually, I've always wondered that why don't databases generate or at least suggest indexes and constraints for you? What's your intuition on maybe even outside the context of single store? Mm -hmm. Why hasn't that been an obvious improvement to existing databases? It is. It is a huge research area. Okay. And it's and I think it's starting to pick up steam. It's just so hard to get right. Yeah. And the other thing that's really interesting is people are generally very risk averse mm. in terms mm. in their database workloads. Right. If I don't want to do, I care much more about if I make, make some optimization that this tool suggested I make, I, I'm much more concerned about losing 2x performance than gaining 2x performance. Because yeah. now my new users are going to notice that we're 2x slower versus if I have 2x faster, they're going to be happy. <laughs> they're going to be way more angry than they would be happy. Yeah. So yeah, that is, is loss aversion is definitely something that, that I, I think we deal with. Yeah. Shaving 200 milliseconds off of a query time may not be as appreciated as how angry someone gets if I had a couple seconds, right? Yeah. Uh, because you got some optimization wrong. I, actually, that's a topic that I imagine you have to deal with a lot because even in, internally at Orb, we think of our database as a, as a tool and, and not necessarily a service and, and the the difference that I see there is I think of the database or the data store as a core part of my architecture, not really something outside of it. And my sense is that this has some pretty interesting implications for the reliability contract between the core service and the data, database or data store that you choose to use. So how do people think about downtime or even performance as it relates to single store? It feels like just having an SLA is not enough, or I imagine that Mm -hmm. conversations get tricky, even if you do have an SLA around. So yeah, tell me a little bit about that conversation. Yeah. I, yeah, obviously having an SLA is enough. Even if you're meeting your SLA, if you had to yeah. have, have an outage or you had a performance problem, they're not, people are, are, are very unhappy. Yeah. I think the way that we see it is that our, obviously we still have a self-managed product. Most of our new customers grow on, on, on our SaaS product. And the reason for that is that you just, you're getting a lot more capabilities when you're running a database as a service versus when you're running that as just like a piece of technology within your stack. We have a whole team of SREs, obviously in the background that, that specialize in, in that database, but that comes with upgrades. There's somebody looking at when an upgrade happens, Did it, is there a regression? Yeah. And you don't really have to worry about that. And you don't right. have to specialize in, in understanding that. Yeah, uh, it comes with man managing the storage for you. So I think the you're right. 
But at the same time, because you can just get so much more out of, and this isn't true for all database services, but you can at least have the capability of offering a lot more and removing some of that complexity that for a lot of people that aren't database specialists, mm -hmm. that that is a reasonable trade-off for them. Now, we do still offer our self-managed product and there are some customers that like, they really love databases. They consider themselves like database people themselves and they yeah. want to run their database and that's yeah. no power to them. Yeah, and I imagine that when we think about something like performance, obviously it's a function of the customer workload. And that being said, if my database isn't keeping up and I'm using a service like single store that the managed product, I imagine that as a customer, I'm still going to go to you and be like, hey, why is this working? So is that something that you encounter a lot? And how do you navigate that? It, generally, it's always guilty for from the customer's perspective. It is guilty <laughs> until proven innocent. So what we have done is just built a lot of profiling and observability tools. So mm. making it very visible how much cache you're using, how much CPU you're using, what are your most expensive queries? And then within that, what are the most uh, expensive operators yeah. uh, and then, and, and things like that. So that should be, make it pretty clear. Okay. You're, you're saturating CPU. That's why your, your query latency is going up you yeah. need to scale. or you have this one query is taking up 70% of the resources on, on, on your cluster. You should go be going and, and investigating the, that query. And sometimes yeah. that query being slow is the result of a missing index in which case we're exonerated. And in some cases, the career optimizer makes the wrong choice, in which case we go in and make a fix. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, but it's, it's definitely uh, guilty until proven innocent. And, and so yeah. we need, we want to, and we want to make it really easy for, for the customer to, to understand where their bottlenecks are and big adjustments. Yeah. I guess it's about giving them the reasoning tools to be able to say, what are my next steps? Do I actually have to go to single store and be like, Hey, this query plan doesn't make sense or. Do I have to throw more money at the problem or whatever? Yeah, is, right? absolutely. And so we've talked a little bit about reliability. Of course, maybe the thing that even comes above reliability is correctness. That's super important in your business. How do you approach testing something like single store, especially over the course of a decade, it evolved so much. And the, the sorts of surface area, as you're saying, with the configurability yeah. is, is very yeah, broad. Yeah. For database, reliability and correctness are, are bread and butter. If we can't do that, yeah. we have no reason to exist. So we've always been very, pretty fanatical about testing. So we have a service, internal service that we call Psyduck. So it's about a couple thousand or maybe a thousand or so servers. Yeah, it's actually in Nicolo in Emeryville. So it's actually mm -hmm. it's a workload that would be, for us, would be pretty cost prohibitive to run in the cloud because it is, and it's not elastic. It pretty much runs 24-7 during the day. You have engineers that basically can submit any test run and then get result, any of our like 200,000 or so tests and okay. get a result back in, in an hour or so. And then over overnight, it runs, I think, about 100, 150,000, 200,000 tests every night. Okay. Um, and so, it's, yeah, it's really powerful. That, so it, and the tests run the gamut from being things that are as simple as insert some data, create, create a table, insert some data, run some queries and check the results yeah. compared to maybe MySQL or Postgres or some safe results. Right. Or like at the other end of the spectrum, it's going to be something like run a full workload simulation for an hour that creates, creates a bunch of, of nodes and is like randomly killing them, creating failovers right. or like specific scenarios. So it's, it allows for a really a lot of flexibility in testing and scalability of testing. Yeah. Uh, so that's definitely allowed us to really valuable for us over the years. And, and I have a couple questions. Maybe I'll start with why not run that in the cloud? Like you said, it's an Emeryville. I imagine uh, that's yeah. not a very so traditional choice. It would just have been 
when we costed it out, we originally ran it in the cloud. And because it's running, cloud is great for elasticity. Yeah. But it is a workload that's pretty much running at full saturation all the time. Mm. Mm. And so it's not elastic. So we don't really aren't getting like a, a cost benefit there. And yeah. it's also, obviously, it has an, S, an internal SLA to our engineers, but it's not a production service. Yeah. So it, it's it, there's a little bit more more tolerance there, though, obviously, our tolerance to outages there has decreased over time. Yeah. It used to actually just run in a closet. And as we've grown now, it's actually in, in, in a colo. So yeah, it, it as a result, it just it gave up some flexibility and, and, and a little bit more responsibility on ourselves, but just saved a over the years, probably millions, tens of millions of dollars. Yeah. Do, do you have interesting strategies for how to generate these tests? Is it like, okay, I'm introducing whatever nested fields or a new type of index, and I go and write a bunch of tests as the engineer working on the feature, or, or is there a way to generate a more comprehensive test suite that, that you all have thought of over the year? A couple of different strategies, depending on the feature area. So one, I, for some things, it's, it's very simple, it can be sane tests. Yeah. For query testing, we have what we called random query generators, RQGs. Okay. And depending on which RQG, but like you can think of that as basically a reverse grammar to generate SQL queries. Right. So you have the corpus of, of specific queries that we're type trying to generate or permutations. And yeah. then it's just going through and randomly putting them different cr creating queries. And yeah. so that those find tons of of bugs in, in, in query execution and query optimization. Hmm. In storage and clustering, that's more of uh, like the this type of stress testing I was talking about before, where you're creating a simulation and killing nodes, creating failovers, trying to create scenarios where you might lose data and, and making yeah. sure you Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I think the reason I'm asking is because to some extent, we're thinking about a similar sort of problem at Ouroboer. As you can imagine, even in something like billing, you can be in thousands and hundreds of thousands of permutations of states where mm -hmm. a subscription might have been canceled in a very specific way and you have this series of plan changes and so it is it's tricky to figure out how do you test that surface area comprehensively i, I imagine you all have put a lot of thought into is it the syntax on the testing front which is how can you get engineers to do the data store setup and write these queries and mm -hmm. create the, the kind of underlying boilerplate for these tests uh, in a way where it's not expensive to to add to the testing surface. Yeah, yeah, so definitely for like the RQGs, those are really nice in that yeah. you have a framework. And every so often, we need to build a new framework because we're doing something like substantially different. We yeah. have built up a number of them, enough of them over the years that really happens anymore. And you just add a new mode that's testing your specific query feature. Yeah. And then it's, okay, I add a new feature and it's actually like pretty simple. I can now test like the full orthogonality of this specific operator with based just about every other query execution feature that's in this RQG. Yeah. So that's 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 really nice about those. And, yeah. and that's that's something you could never do with, with manually writing tests. Yeah. So we've talked about reliability and correctness. I think that was probably the right place to start for a data store. But I'm curious, in your lens, what are the hardest technical problems that that you and the team are working on now? Maybe this is something that's coming up in single store or something that's like an ongoing technical challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one thing we've been working on for the last couple of years, so as, as we started as a self-managed in-memory database and have been moving towards more of a general purpose cloud database, is yeah. moving a lot of the services that are currently, you think of as core services within the database and moving them actually outside of the database. Hmm. 
first thing that we did, obviously, was building separation of storage computes so that uh, object files are not resident on S3. But actually, the metadata yeah. is still entirely resident on uh, a cluster. The next thing stage for that was now building like the uh, metadata for those object files are now being moved outside of the cluster. So that enables okay. things like actually data sharing. Now, now that because that metadata is, is separate, you can share data uh, right. across clusters. You can do things like uh, branch a database, create a new cluster on mm -hmm. that branch, mm -hmm. and they're now completely independent. Mm -hmm. Like other services that we'll likely start to do or move, moving index construction off, off of an index maintenance and into a service where, where that feels like a pretty core database operation. But yeah. once it's, when it's built as a service, now you can throw as much compute at the problem to keep your indexes up to date without disrupting the actual running workload at all. So provide yeah. like a way better way and way more predictable performance than we could otherwise. Another one that we'll, we're, we're kicking off is doing database ingest to service. So if you mm -hmm. want to do like a, a big load into the database, it will just go use as much compute as it needs to do that load and do it really fast. And you don't have, yeah. to, you don't have to like to think about provisioning that. So that's that, a, yeah. sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So that, that's th those types of things is, I think th those are like the things that, that I'm at least on the database side, the most excited about that, that, and I think are the most technically interesting that we have on the horizon. Yeah. I was going to say that those feel like, even if you have the perfect data store, they're the operations around how you productionize it and how you use it on a day-to-day -day basis with branching. How do I create replicas without having to, to copy a bunch of data with mm -hmm. something like ingest? It's great. This data store works, but now I have this problem of migrating to it, right? And potentially yeah. backfilling it with a lot of data. So would you say that's the right frame to think about it? Because I also heard a little bit there around performance predictability, maybe about durability, maybe about even just scaling the database. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there's like a single focus around these features or is it you know, a little mix of all of those things? So I would say if I would give it a single focus, it's to be able to, it's so that we can, we're enabling experiences and use cases that weren't possible in an on-prem or a self-managed database. And so the goal is to have a better overall developer experience and the theme that ties us together is we're doing things that just weren't possible before. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. So I think the, the last question I wanted to ask you was, there's a bunch of data stores around today, especially when it comes to things like real-time processing, what we were talking about before, uh, real-time analytics workloads. And I'm sure there's design trade-offs in all of these data stores. And thinking more at the macro level, how do you think about the trajectory of this industry? Are these specialized data stores going to survive the decade? Do you think there's going to be some consolidation? Do you think that it really is about getting to some sort of completeness milestone? Like, mm -hmm. where does this go 10 years from now? I know this is a big question. Yeah, I, I won't make predictions about who will survive, <laughs> other than I think will survive. <laughs> but I think the interesting thing is that there have been a couple of waves of like explosions in the number of databases. You saw this kind of in the early 2010s with the NoSQL explosion. And now yeah. the lone survivor is really MongoDB. Yeah. There are a couple other small ones, but MongoDB is like way right. by and far the biggest one. So I think like the market and MongoDB actually isn't even specialist anymore. Like it has analytics and SQL and all right. that stuff. For, so definitely the market can support a couple specialized systems. But I think the key thing is that, like I was saying, I think I said this before, is that a lot of the underlying technology is going to 
if it hasn't already commoditized, it will commoditize. So the mm -hmm. ones that survive and thrive are the will be the ones that can provide the the best developer experience and put the pieces together to provide that. And that can be, and I think for different systems are going to go after that different way and pick a different set of trade-offs. Some um, for the easiest way to get started, you can pip install at your vector store and, right. and get started. On the other hand, like for us, it's the fact that you can do all these things together. Mm. I think it will be interesting to see like where, which of those matters more. And, and to a certain extent, I think both, but yeah, we'll see. Great. Yeah. That's a good answer. And I think that also to me centers single store in, the, in a new frame where it's not about performance or workload unification in this like abstract way. It's about the developer experience of having to run these workloads in, in separate data stores and separate environments is, is really not good. And so consolidating that is, is really about how do you make the developer at a company not have to do as much work and just have a better experience working with the data. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Ravi. And it was really great talking to you and appreciate the conversation and your insights. Yeah, thanks. Really enjoyed this.